And let's take our Bibles. We will turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. You know, when it comes to Jesus, we have to make a decision about who He is. You can't fence it. You can't vacillate between one opinion about Him and another. God expects us to take the evidence that He's given us about who Jesus is and to each individually make a decision. Will I accept it as true? Or will I reject it and go on about life as I always have? When we come to Mark chapter 11, we find that Jesus was presenting Himself to Israel as the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Promised One of God, the One who would be the King of Israel, but more than any of that, Savior. And what we find are a lot of different responses to Jesus. There were some who looked at Jesus and said, yeah, we'll accept Him as a political deliverer. We'd love it if somebody would come in here and get rid of Rome because we're tired of being under Rome's thumb. There were others who were in charge of the religion of that day. They didn't like Jesus and what He proposed because they saw it as an erosion of their political and so-called spiritual power. So they certainly didn't want the Jesus that our Lord presented Himself to be. John wrote these words. He was in the world, and though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. He came to that which is His own, but His own did not receive Him. Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. Jesus wants us to receive Him as God's sent one, the one sent to make us right with God. It is through Jesus that we know Him, so it's vital that we have a proper picture. But as we continue in the account today, we're going to see a clash take place. A clash between the Jesus who is, the Jesus of revelation, the Jesus who is sent by God to take men's lives and transform them, and the old guard. The old guard that said, hey, we want to perpetuate our man-made religion because we're the power brokers. We receive all of the benefit from it. So don't mess with what we have developed here. What we're going to see is there is one course to follow. We must choose that course. As we come to the 11th chapter, we come to a passage of Scripture that really causes us to rejoice because we think of it in terms of Palm Sunday. I'd like to take a little bit different approach to this passage because normally on Palm Sunday, what do we do? We have palms, we rejoice, 
we sort of enter into the celebration of Jesus entering Jerusalem. And if we looked at it at face value, we would look at it and say, yeah, that's something to really rejoice over. All of the palm branches, all of the celebration, crying out Hosanna, which means save us. What a wonderful picture. But what we're going to see is Palm Sunday was actually rather a tragic picture. Because the people still did not understand who Jesus was. And the Jesus that they wanted to embrace was a Jesus of their own making, not who Jesus presented himself to be. Look at this passage and notice the first verse. Mark says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. So they went and found a colt outside in the street and tied to a doorway, And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying the colt? And they answered, as Jesus had told them, and the people let them go. What do we find here? We find Jesus preparing to present himself in a very unique way to the people of Israel. Now, what Jesus was doing, I think, has tremendous significance. Notice, he's approaching Jerusalem And he's coming by way of the Mount of Olives. Now, when we hear the Mount of Olives, we don't necessarily understand the history of this place, the importance of this particular place. So let's think about this. Jesus comes here and he's presenting himself to the children of Israel. He wanted the people to accept him for who he is, not who they wanted him to be. And so he's presenting himself to be the Messiah of God, and he's coming by way of the Mount of Olives. And what we find with the Mount of Olives is a rich history. The Mount of Olives was a place that was mentioned in Ezekiel's history. When Ezekiel was prophesying about the glory of God, there's an amazing passage that talks about the glory of God dwelling in the temple. And then in this passage, he describes how the glory of God departs from the temple to the gates of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives where it departs. In Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23, it says, The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain to the east of it. So the Mount of Olives is a place that's associated with the departure of God's glory in Ezekiel's vision. Something else we find about the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is a place that is going to have a prominent place in future yet to come. Ezekiel says, And I saw the glory of God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with His glory. Now here he's talking about the return of God to the Mount of Olives. So this is going to be a prominent place in prophecy, and it's a prominent place this day as well. Because it begins, again, a departure. A departure of the Son of God because of the rejection of the people of Israel. As a matter of fact, there's another mention of the Mount of Olives in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, 
it was from there that Jesus ascended into heaven after his crucifixion and resurrection as he left the disciples that was at the Mount of Olives. And we believe that Jesus will return to the Mount of Olives as well. So it's an amazing history. And this is where Jesus is. And this is where he's preparing to present himself. And we don't know if all of this history was going through the minds of the disciples or through the mind of Christ. It's not revealed. But one can't help but wonder if perhaps it wasn't. But then there's something else here that happens that's significant. Why did Jesus instruct the disciples to go get an unridden colt and bring it to him? Guess what? Prophecy is being fulfilled again. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the scripture says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What Jesus was doing was presenting to the children of Israel in no uncertain terms who he is. And he was forcing a decision. Will you embrace me as the king of prophecy? the promised one of God, or will you turn away and embrace the religion that you followed all along? You know, many people are faced with that same decision today. They become enmeshed in a religion that's comfortable. It's something that they've embraced all of their life, perhaps even generationally. They've embraced a religion. It doesn't have the proper teaching about Christ But that doesn't matter because it's a tradition. It's something that I've held on to. And they have a hard time when they come face to face with who Jesus reveals himself in the word of God to be. They have a hard time letting go of that and embracing what God reveals in his word. Listen, Jesus is not who we make him. Jesus is who he has revealed himself to be. And it's vital that we understand that revelation of himself. And you're not going to get an accurate picture of who Jesus is from a religion. You're going to get an accurate picture of who Jesus is from God's revelation, his word. That's how we form our understanding. That's how we form in our minds who Jesus is. So it's vital that we learn from Scripture these truths. When Mark recounts the event, he talks about Jesus going and having the disciples procure for him a colt to ride. And it's amazing as we look at this, the detail that Mark gives us of how Jesus described what would happen and then what actually happened. Jesus had a foreknowledge of what would transpire as the disciples went to procure the colt. And it's a glimpse for us into Jesus being more than just a teacher, more than just a traveling rabbi. Jesus had knowledge of what would happen, and it was 100% true. Jesus was a prophet, and he demonstrated that he was so much more. So here is Jesus. He's presenting himself to these people. He's coming, and he's showing himself to be the Messiah that was promised right in the book of Zechariah. And when we look at the response of the people, 
initially, we might look at that and feel excited about it. He was praised by the people, but unfortunately, only as a political deliverer. Look at what we find as we come to verse 7. Verse 7 says this, When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, when we hear the word Hosanna and we see that it means save us, initially we might look at this and we might say, wow, they they get it. They finally understand that Jesus is the deliverer that the Scripture promises. But here's the problem. The people who were crying out Hosanna had different designs on what Jesus would do. They were not interested in a spiritual Savior. They wanted a political one. And it's demonstrated right in their words where they say, blessed is the coming of our father David. Their hope was that Jesus would come on the scene and deliver them from Rome itself, the superpower of their day. They were tired of being slaves to Rome. They wanted freedom. And so their hope is, here is this miracle worker. Here is this one who was promised in the Old Testament to be our political deliverer, and that's what we want in him. Here's the problem. When Scripture talks about the Messiah, it mentions that he's a political deliverer, but it mentions so much more. You see, not just delivering them politically, but much more importantly, there was a need for spiritual deliverance. Sometimes people approach Jesus, and there's maybe one area of their life that they want him to address. I'd like to retain the rest. You just address this one area. We try to make Jesus become what we want him to be so that whatever perceived need we might have will be addressed. We're not thinking about who He is and responding to Him as all that He's revealed Himself to be. And so if I go and I look at Jesus and I pick and choose the various aspects of Jesus that I want and neglect the areas of Jesus that I don't really want, I'm guilty of the same sin that these people are guilty of. We can't have a menu where we order off the menu and say, this aspect of Jesus and this aspect of Jesus I like, and this aspect not so much. We have to look at what God reveals about him and embrace the Jesus revealed in Scripture. Now, as these people were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they were actually referencing one of the Psalms. In Psalm 118, it says this, Lord, save us. Now, that would be Hosanna. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're they're actually quoting this psalm right here in this text. 
And it goes on to say, from the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and He has made His light to shine upon us with bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. So when we look at what they did in grabbing the bows mentioned in this passage of Scripture and throwing their cloaks on the ground in front of Him, they were receiving their political deliverer and they were putting into practice part of a psalm. But you know what's amazing about the 118th Psalm is this. It's in that same psalm that we find this statement. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. You know what that passage is referencing? The rejection of Jesus. Peter brings this out in his writings. So the same psalm where they say, yay, political deliverer, they ignore the part about the suffering Messiah. They pick and they choose the Jesus that they want. When we look at the last part of this triumphal entry, we come to the 11th verse. And in the 11th verse, we see how Jesus prepared to address the corruption that had taken place in the temple. And notice what it says. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple, and he looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now we might look at this and just say, well, kind of an anticlimactic end to this triumphal entry. But I think we have to think about what's going on. Jesus had presented himself as Messiah spiritual deliverer of Israel. And where does he wind up at the end of his entry at the temple? And what's going on in the temple? The temple had been or had become the seat of spiritual corruption in Israel. God in the person of Jesus Christ presents himself before the temple. And the religious leaders of his day had rejected him and continued to do so. So as he stops at the temple after the triumphal entry, I don't see this as a time of rejoicing, but a time of great sorrow. Jesus just stops and looks at what's going on in the temple. And the religion that had hijacked what God originally intended grieved him. I see a, an expression of sadness on Jesus. Perhaps indignation and even wrath. But he stops. He walks away. And he'll address these things the next day. This story is a story that pictures how God views corrupt religion. When man hijacks what God has designed and turns it into something for his own political or power base or for his material gain or any of these things, God is grieved by it. Religion is man reaching out and saying, I will make a system 
that will cause me to be acceptable to God. And God wants nothing to do with religion. He wants relationship. And that relationship is provided through His Son. And here's the sad part of this. This religion that they had developed pushed people away from God's Son and God's truth and God's revelation rather than drawing them toward Him. And it grieved Jesus' heart. Now, in the passage before us, when we come to the next part of this, there's a story about Jesus and a fig tree. For just now, we're going to skip this because what Mark does is he sandwiches between the story of the fig tree, Jesus going to the temple and dealing with the corruption that's there. And I believe that the fig tree story is a picture of how Jesus would judge those who had co-opted and hijacked the true faith in God that had been Israel's, but turned it into something else, one that rejected the very Son of God. So let's skip to the 15th verse, and let's see what Jesus does once he's in the temple. Then we're going to go back to verses 12 through 14. When we come to the 15th verse, we find that Jesus comes to proclaim the corruption of the broken religious system that was in place. And notice, he prohibits the continuing corruption. Verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Now, when I look at this passage of Scripture, some of the pictures that you see of Jesus where he looks like this little wimpy thing, you know, kind of almost girly, doesn't fit the image of this passage of Scripture, does it? I mean, if you had some little wimp come in and say, you stop that right now, (laughs) they're not going to do anything. They don't care. That's not the image of of, of Jesus that I get. The passage of Scripture that I find here shares with us a Jesus who demonstrated wrath and was an imposing figure in demonstrating that wrath. He overturned the tables and drove them out. That demonstrates somebody who had some bearing about him. But it also shares with us the righteous indignation and anger that was Jesus's at what was going on. Now, exactly what was going on in the temple. Within the temple grounds, they had established some booths. Probably the idea initially was to aid worshipers. You know, think about it. You're coming in on a pilgrimage and you have no sacrifice and you have no money that will work in that area, so you have to go to a money exchange. 
So maybe to expedite things so that they could give their offerings and so that they could buy their sacrifice to take to the temple, something was provided. It used to be outside the temple grounds, as far away as even the Mount of Olives by some of the archaeological finds. But in about 30 AD, Caiaphas decided, let's put it right within the temple grounds. But there was more at work than just the corruption of them cheating people as they were making the money exchanges and as they were selling the animals for sacrifice. Guess where they put it? Right in the court of the Gentiles. And that was the issue. When they put this together, they decided that they would put it in an area that only the Gentiles could come and worship. Now, if we look at this picture of the temple, you can see that there are large areas with porticos right outside the temple grounds. That was called the court of the Gentiles. So the money changers come in, and they're taking the area right around the outside there, up with booths that were to be places where Gentile worshipers could come and worship God. So basically what they were doing was making their religion more exclusive. If we can keep the Gentiles out, then we can continue to uh, have our religion just to ourselves. So Jesus' indignation was not only to the money changers, But Jesus' indignation was the way they had taken the religion and once again excluded people that God wanted them to reach out to. Why did God call Israel? Not only so that they could be His people, but so that they could do what? So that they could reach out to the Gentile world and share with them what the people of God are like. So when they took the temple grounds, and excluded the very people that God wanted them to reach, Jesus was indignant. Their religion had been too inward. Their religion excluded people that God wanted to reach. But there's something else that's going on here as well. When Jesus comes through the temple... It's with the knowledge that something is going on. And that knowledge is this, that it would be destroyed. Later in Mark chapter 13, verse 2, it says this, Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Here's what happened. During Jesus' time, Jesus knew that the temple would be destroyed. In 70 A.D., that prophecy was fulfilled. The Roman general Titus came through, sacked Jerusalem, totally destroyed the temple. And here's what's truly sad about the whole chain of events. Jesus was crucified to protect the religion of the temple. And then within one generation after that, The thing that they sought to protect was destroyed anyway. Jesus was calling them to task because what they were doing was slapping God in the face, saying, I will 
keep this religious system in place. I'm not interested in anything that anyone has to say. I am married to a religious system. And it was a corrupt system. And it was their power base. And Jesus was coming in and saying, stop. Stop. We will not have this. So they were excluding the lost. They were maintaining their power base. It was a corrupt system, and Jesus wanted it to cease. And then we come to the 17th verse. And here Jesus proclaims clearly the sin of this corrupt religion. Look at verse 17. He taught them and He said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now when Jesus makes this quote, He's referencing some Old Testament prophets. He's sharing with us some thoughts from Isaiah and from Jeremiah. In Jeremiah's part of this statement, my house will be called a house of prayer for the nations. Jeremiah was sharing this as people were preparing for the destruction of Israel. Jeremiah was a prophet who prophesied about the coming judgment, the destruction of Solomon's temple in preparation for the Babylonians coming in and tearing it down. So Jeremiah's prophecy was a prophecy that was given to Israel because they stood against God's truth. They were apostates. Jesus' quotation of this passage has significance. You know, this passage also shares with us the original intent that God had for the temple. What does he say it will be? It will be a house of prayer for who? For the nations. Not just Israel, but the nations. So Jesus is addressing this on several levels. It's a statement that you can expect coming judgment. And then the part of the passage where he quotes from Jeremiah saying, this has become a den of robbers, that's where the statement of coming judgment really is driven home. We need to understand that Corrupt religions that don't recognize Jesus for who He is are things that deceive and lead many astray. God has no place for it. And yet, when we look around, when we see how many corrupt and distorted pictures of how a person relates to God are given out there by man's own design, not by God's revelation. When we look and we see that, we have to wonder, what would God say today if He were to walk into one of those places where that religion is perpetuated? I think He would have the same response Jesus had here with His own people because of the corruption that had taken place there. So after Jesus comes in to the temple grounds and He drives off the money changers, what do we find? We find that there was a plot that was put into place. 
rather than repentance. Look at verse 18. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the crowd was amazed at his teaching. What does that 18th verse tell us? It tells us that after many times of interaction between the religious leaders of Israel and Jesus, where the religious leaders tried to discredit Jesus and had failed, the only solution they could see was killing him. And why did they want to kill him? Because they feared him. Not in the godly sense that we're supposed to fear God, but in the competitive sense. Notice Mark gives this explanation because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. You know what the religious establishment saw? The erosion of their power base. The erosion of the things that let them do what they wanted to do in leadership. If people were to turn to Jesus, it would mean a change in their structure. And they wanted no part. So they plotted. They plotted his death. And then we come to the fig tree. When we look back at verses 12 through 14, this seems kind of like a random story. Jesus and the disciples are going from one place to another. And there's a fig tree there. And it's not the season for figs, but it has full leaf. And Jesus walks up and he's hungry. And because the fig tree didn't bear figs in season, he cursed it. Or out of season, rather. He cursed it. Now, if we looked at this from just a random event, we'd say, well, that's not fair. You know, fig trees don't bear figs out of season. Did he have a, a fit of anger where he cursed the fig tree? No. I believe it was an object lesson, an object lesson for the disciples. Mark's comment that it was out of season, I think, is just an explanation to us. It had nothing to do with the story or the image that Jesus was really promoting. The fig tree had the appearance of life. But when Jesus came to it and no fruit no care was provided. He cursed it. It was a picture of what was going on in Israel. It was the provision of an object lesson. Israel had the picture of life, but no fruit, no good was coming of it. And just as this fig tree that appeared to be good and decent and, you know, great fig tree, was judged, this temple that was beautiful, that had the appearance of life, there was always activity that was going on in the temple, was accomplishing absolutely nothing. And so as the fig tree was cursed, so would the temple be. So would Israel be. There were consequences were following a corrupt religion. 
And this object lesson is brought home for us in verses 19 through 21. I should have said 21 for the scripture reading. Notice what it says at verse 19. When evening came, they went out of the city. And in the morning, as they went along and saw the fig tree withered from the roots, Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Here, Jesus was talking about the problem of corruption being from the roots up. You know, if you go to a tree and you see a branch here and there that are just sort of withered, what do you do? You lop off the withered branches and you nurture the tree a little bit and it comes back to life. What happens when you see a tree that's withered from the roots up? You get out the chainsaw and you have firewood. When it's withered like that, it's done. It's gone. You know what I think Jesus was demonstrating by his object lesson? That the problems in Israel were so dynamic that it would be destroyed. The temple, the center of their worship, couldn't be reformed. He couldn't walk in and say, you know, tweak this a little bit, straighten up over here a little bit, and we'll be fine. We'll have a good religion. There are some religions that are so off base, they have to be abandoned. They have to be left. That's what Jesus was saying about the religion of the Jewish people. It had been infiltrated, co-opted, corrupted, hijacked, and therefore, no reformation replacement. When we look at this story, it's a sad story. A story of how political and religious corruption had crept into a system that God had designed to be something good. But it's also a story of rejoicing because God provided something better. And that something better is someone better, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to us to live among us, to die for us, so that we could have a relationship with God. And here's the wonderful truth. You don't have to go through a man-made religion to have a relationship with God. All you have to do is place your faith in Jesus Christ, the fact that he died on the cross for you, turn from your sin to God, and trust Him to change you and make you the kind of person God wants you to be. It's not us looking and saying, hey, I'm going to try real hard, and I'm going to follow this man-made list of rules, and if I do all of these things, then God will accept me. That's not how we have a relationship with God. We have a relationship with God by responding to the person that He sent to save us, Jesus Christ. By knowing Him as God's Son sent into this world, to live among us, to die for us, to be raised again to life because of his victory over sin. When we embrace that truth and turn from everything else to him, we have a relationship with the Father. Listen, you can't take yourself and reform yourself. There has to be a transformation from the inside out that's done by the very power of God. And that comes when we trust Him. Take Him at His word. 
and what he's presented to us as truth. May God richly bless each of you as you turn more and more to God and you turn away from the man-made things that would distract us from who God is. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage, for the lesson that it is for us. May we be those who follow the truth revealed in Christ Jesus. May we be discerning that we not be drawn into a man-made religion that draws us away. God, drive us to your word. Let us see Jesus and let us love and follow him. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.